morning. I want to also say that I am a, a, a big fan of your pastor. Uh, he's been an encouragement to me and to many other pastors, young and old, and I'm neither. Um, and uh, I appreciate your, your church and the testimony in this place. And we have, over the years, referred people who were moving this direction to, uh, to this church. My first wedding I ever did was in this church. Pastored all those years. When you're church planting and you have either people with no children or very small children, you don't do a whole lot of weddings. A lot of funerals for some reason, but very few weddings. And uh, my first wedding was in this church. Uh, and I, uh, Pastor Rod won't mind my telling you this, that I'm sure past, uh, Camp Swampy is a really great place. I'm going to, first of all, create the need for counseling and then offer counseling here. <laughs> but Penile is right in your backyard. And I'm the director of the junior high camp at Penile. And we have a great speaker, and I could always use more counselors. So if you can't go to Camp Swampy, come to Penile. And if that created a problem, I'm leaving this afternoon. <laughs> let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer as we open this, this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have given us wonderful passages to study and wonderful examples to, to look at. This man is very enigmatic and very powerful, and you have commended him to our attention this day. And so we study. We ask that you would rip open our hearts and pour in deeply the significance that we are about to study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I am wanting to talk to you today about the, the record of Job's godly character. And before we do so, I want us to look at this, what I'm going to call a pre-evaluation, a pre-test evaluation. I don't mean to be morbid, but, uh, but someday people who knew you and loved you are going to be standing over your casket. They're going to be sitting in a service. And in a relatively short time, the pastor is going to, with an economy of words, sum up your life and your character. Now, you can pick your casket, you can pick your tombstone, you can pick what it maybe says on that tombstone, uh, but you cannot pick what people say about you. These are my folks. Uh, who in the last three years, my mother passed away uh, just a, a couple months ago, actually. They made it to 90 years, four score and 10. So do the, do the math, that is over 1,000 months, 4,500 weeks, 32,000 days, 700,000 hours. What we want is to be sure that what we do for Christ lasts. Make every moment count for Christ. There may be some people here who say, you know what? I don't care what people say about me. Or maybe you say, the older I get, the less I care what people say about me. But I don't believe you, and that's not really wise anyway. You and I should hope that our life reflects the glory and the purpose of God in our life. It's important for us to know that it was God, not Job's wife, and certainly not Job's counselors who said, as you see in chapter 2 and verse 3 of our text, there is none like him on the earth. God said that. It was God who gave us this book. It was God who sets before us this man. 
It, was, it is God who wants us to learn from this study. And it is God who can accomplish great things in us, even though we know what we are like. So let's, uh, let's think for just a moment about the theme and the focus of this book. I'll run through this quickly because I don't want to get labored down in this. But it is really not to show us the, the purpose of suffering, the answer to suffering. Nowhere in the book does it say, this is why Job went through this. In fact, Job doesn't know why he goes through this. Job doesn't know what's going on for most of this. And it's really not about Job. He's not even the central figure. It's also not about how to correct, how to put straight those who get us wrong, those who maybe give wrong counsel. And a lot of what Zophar and Bildad and Eliphaz and even Elihu say is accurate. It's the right thing to the wrong person. They're using a retributive or retributive theology. He did something wrong, so you need to confess, and then it'll all be right. But I think that really what we see is that God is saying, I'm in control, I'm sovereign, and you're not. I need to learn that lesson just about every day. God is sovereign. He can use pain. He, he does use suffering for his purposes. And what I am reminded of is that God does not owe me an answer to all my whys. When will this be over? Why me? May I encourage you to encourage your pastor to keep writing poems and music. It's been a blessing. There are a lot of songs that are being written today that are beautiful to sing but are, have poor theology. It used to be that pastors wrote a lot of those old hymns. Some of these hymns that he has written have been born out of his broken heart, out of the things that the Lord has taken him through. When we think of the book of Job, we usually think of his pathos, his suffering. I'm going through something. I need a verse that encourages someone. I'm sure there's something in the book of Job. But I'm going to tell you, when you are in the crucible... This book and this man become very precious indeed. God intends for us to meditate on this book as well as your favorite book of the Bible, whatever that may be. We study this character, but we remember all the while that only Christ was sinless. So let's look for just a moment at his character as noted by God. I'm going to run you through some of the things that I have been studying. I won't get to all of them. If I do, it'll run into the uh, graduation today. But um, he was above reproach. We have the word blameless or perfect. He was righteous, our term upright in our text. He feared God. I'm going to put this, and I'll spend some time on this later, reverent obedience. That's what I think feared God means. He was godly. He shewed evil. He shunned evil. He was priestly. Did you listen as he sacrificed on behalf of his family, lest perchance they had cursed God in their hearts? And he was worshipful. And then there's one more that's not even in the book of Job. You have to go to the book of James. He was steadfast. Well, I won't get to all of these today, but my intent is not to tell you about who he is, but what he is. By looking at those first few, few verses in chapter 1, before the trial, the hardship ever starts, we're introduced to a godly man. And it is God who says, this is what Job is. One of the only background things I can tell you is he probably lived during the time of the patriarchs. He lived before we had scripture written down, likely. Abraham was God's friend. Job was God's example. 
It is Job that God says, where have you been, Satan? Walking up and down to and fro. Have you considered this man, my servant Job? If Job knew that, he probably would have said, thank you, God, so much. <laughs> but what, a, what an example. He lives probably as a Gentile during a time in that Israel's sojourn in, 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 in Egypt, perhaps even a little earlier. God used some writer to write down the history of Job that we may study it and profit from it even today. So notice also that he was, we'll start off with this one, above reproach. Our text uses the word perfect or blameless. And clearly this does not mean that he was without sin. You and I already know this. But he had a testimony before God and from God to his integrity. Right away, we're told that Job demonstrated a trust in God and that God was working in his life. I hope that can be said of you and me, that you can say, I'm not perfect, but I am a work of God in progress. Whatever revelation, whatever grace had touched the life of Job, it was evident in his life, and he valued it, and he lived by it. That's what we're desiring to do this morning. Also notice that Job was, you could be sure that uh, Matthew twenty-five twenty-one applies to him, where God, the Lord Jesus Christ said, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. And, and we could say, you know, if anybody was above and exempted from pro problems and trials, it would be a man that we have this fourfold testimony, that he was perfect, that he was upright, that he eschewed evil, that he was godly, that he was worshipful, that he was priestly, that he was steadfast. Shouldn't that have exempted him from problems? No. No. And notice also that Job showed practical holiness and, and a purity, an ethical purity. Are you and I to conclude that Job somehow escaped the curse? I think your theology, if you've been in this church very long, is, uh, is better than that. Does it mean to tell us that he did, just did good things? No. Was he in a bubble and insulated from temptation? No, you know how I know that? Because at the beginning of this book and at the end of this book, the same thing is said about him. And he doesn't stay in a bubble. He's in a crucible. So how was Job perfect? Well, I really believe this, that Job should not be put on a pedestal but under a microscope. The Lord tells Satan, have you considered? And he sets before us, have you ever thought of the life of Job? Before we get into all the trials and all the, the, the conflict with these counselors and a wife that says, curse God and die. I've often wondered what kind of life insurance policy he had for her to say that. But Job was a man that James 5, 17 says, was subject to like passions we are. Put another way, had a nature like ours. Job would have been sitting with you in church. He saw plenty of depravity. He knew what was in his heart. I was telling somebody recently that my boys, when they were teenagers, would say, Dad, you don't trust us? You don't trust me? No, uh, no, I was a teenage boy. You haven't been a dad yet. I've been a teenage son. I know what's in the heart of man. I know what's in my own heart. And he was also surrounded by sinners for that matter. Fact, fact. Romans 23, Job was one of those who for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so like Abraham and David and Jacob and Joseph he 
was a sinner in need of a savior. He's, he was a sinner. Paul spoke of himself as two things can be true at the same time, huh? He, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Paul could also say, as touching the law, say it, blameless. Job, like Paul after him, wanted to know him, to know God. So, in character, what we're saying is that he, he was not lacking. There was not a big hole in his integrity. He had this reputation of being complete, above reproach, blameless. Job's friends didn't understand this. They thought they had them all figured out, and they were wrong. This later, this idea of blamelessness becomes important for us today. It's a quality, it's a requirement of elders, pastors. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Notice what Job claimed to be. No, let me tell you something that Job said about himself. Chapter 23 and verse 12. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more, necess- more than my necessary food, my portion of food. Turn with me to chapter 29, would you please? Would you please is just a polite way of saying, do it now. We need to see this together. When my wife, Suzanne, and I were new in ministry and pastoring in Fresno, California, there was a, a family, both the parents are now with the Lord, but their, their daughter one time was, her daddy was a mechanic and he worked hard. And one time she got, she, she was on his lap and he was half asleep and she was talking and, and, uh, and he, he learned that if he would just go, mm-hmm, nice, uh-huh, right. That's sweet, honey. Oh, nice, honey. He could keep his eyes shut and, <laughs> and be half asleep. Finally, she climbed up on, on his lap, took her fingers, opened up his eyes. She said, no, look it with your eyes, Daddy. And when the, the pastor says, let's look at this passage together, we're saying, look it with your eyes, okay? Chapter 29. First thing he tells us is that he was proper towards the poor and the oppressed. Look at these verses, starting in verse 12. Because I delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help them, the blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Verse 15, I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. Chapter 31, verse 16. If I have withheld from the poor their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my own morsel alone, and the fatherless have not eaten thereof, he goes on in this description all the way down through verse 23. If, 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 then, verse 22, let my arm fall off from my shoulder blade. Back to chapter 29. Here's another thing he he claimed all the while, that he was proper towards officials. Chapter 29, verse 9. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The nobles held their peace. This is Job saying, this is what I used to understand. When I came by, did they accuse me of anything? No. When the, the ear heard of me, Then it blessed me. When the eye saw me, they gave witness because I delivered the poor when they cried. One other thing he says back in chapter 31, verses 1 and 2, that we're most familiar with, he says, I was proper in thought and conduct. I made a covenant with mine eyes. When shall I think upon a maid? For what portion of God is there from above? What inheritance of the Almighty is from on high. He makes it very clear. By the way, Job did not have the New Testament. That's a given. 
He did not have the cleanly, clearly written out commands to love his neighbors as himself, and yet he did. Joe probably had written down very little. Most of it was oral tradition, oral lessons from his grandfather and his father. This is what honors God. This is the way to were to work. This is the way to have a testimony. This is the way you treat your wife. This is the way you're honest with the in your business dealings. His life, Job, did not revolve around things and his possessions. I did some research, looked up, added up what a what a camel costs today, what a she-donkey costs today. This man, in today's value, would be worth about $56 million in his livestock. And yet he was not about things. He was not about tearing down barns and building greater. Amen? He knew what we saw in chapter 29. You can go back to chapter 1 now. But he knew that God had blessed him with things so that he could be a blessing to others. It wasn't about how much I can get and the guy with the most toys wins. It was how can I serve God by serving others with what God has given me. I'm just a steward. He's the owner. Another thing we need to learn is that Curious phrase in chapter 29, verse 14, where he says, I have put on righteousness. It's something he'd put on. And he's no exception. He became right with God by grace through faith. He wasn't saved a different way. But when we find this expression, put on, it's used quite often throughout the Old Testament and Old Testament other writings, and it's used oftentimes of a a judge who would put on his robe, who would put on his turban of judgment, who would make decisions. He adorned himself. And so we have in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 down through 10, that we are to put off the old man and its deeds. We are to put on the new man, even blameless people need the blood of Christ. Yes? Even people we would say, that's the most honest man I've ever met. That's the most godly woman I've ever met. That's the kindest person. That's the best teacher I ever had. They need the blood of Christ. And those who know God strive to live holy, 1 Peter 3, because he is holy. Another thing is that he was righteous. He was made right with God. He adorned himself as a judge would. He, like us, had to put off and put on. And he was upright. He was upright. The second thing in our chapter 1, verse 1 If I'm going to go all the way through Job, we're going to be here a while because I'm stuck in chapter 1, verse 1. But righteousness tells me that he had a living faith, not a dead faith. And you'd have to go back for an afternoon reading and and look, uh, reacquaint yourself with James chapter 2 there. God declared him righteous. And Job was had this upright life, this this work of God in progress, in his purity. He had a large family. He had a successful business. He had a lot of things knocking on the door, beating down the door. He had a lot of mouths to feed. He had a lot of deadlines to meet, don't you know? His life was hectic at times. I'm sure that Job found it a struggle sometimes to find time alone with God. I'm sure there were blessings on his life. And with those blessings, there were a lot of people that wanted something from him. You ever feel that way? The word upright is used a hundred times in the Old Testament to speak, and sometimes it speaks of that which is straight. You think of it. 
The person who is wicked is a person who is crooked, who is taking a diversion, going off the path, away from the straight teaching of the Word of God. He was genuine. He was a straight shooter. He was not some self-righteous hypocrite. He was not some guy that acted one way and then lived another. No, he was a man who loved God and obeyed God out of sincerity. I hope that can be said of us in a growing fashion every day. I'm pretty sure, I've been studying Job for a while. I think we're on a first name basis. I think Job walked before God. He delighted Psalm 1 in the law of liberty. He grew in the understanding of the scriptures. And by what he had in that oral tradition, whatever it was, whatever he'd been taught about God, that's how he steered straight. Well, one other thing I might say is you and I need to be careful we don't conform to the crookedness in our corrupt culture. Today, my wife and I were listening to a podcast on the way here, but today, what people feel about themselves is the reality by what, which you are supposed to deal with them. I won't go into a lot of detail there. Sadly, the character of Job is remembered as legalistic by some, as out of touch by others. Anybody who says, you know what? All I want to do is honor God. I love God. I want to do right. I want to be a straight shooter with the word of God. I want to glorify. I want to show Christ. I want to let my light so shine before men that they may see my good works and do what? Glorify my Father which is in heaven. Somebody like that, you're a legalist. You're not relevant for this time. God has always been more interested in what we are, what he's done in us, and what we do rather than how we feel about ourselves. Societal standards are always in a state of flux. God is not on the move. Plot your course by the word of God. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going out with a farmer. I had made a reference into, uh, in a sermon that I've never been on a tractor, and somebody said, we can fix that, and got me on a tractor. And I was amazed that, that as the corn was being picked and thrown in the back, it was measuring the, the humidity and the, the moisture control. But I also... It, he said it used to be that we would shine a laser all the way down and, and it would hit something and then we would drive by that. Now it's all GPS. Listen, drive straight by the word of God. You get your eyes on what Oprah Windbag or somebody else says and you're going to be crooked. Steer straight by the word of God. We're almost out of time, but I want to show you a picture. Maybe. I've not been here yet. Your pastor just came back from this side of the world. But there is a, uh, a memorial to the Jewish victims of the Holocaust. It's called Vad Yashem. Part of that memorial are th- thousands of carob trees. I don't like carob. But anyway, each tree is planted in remembering the life of some non-Jew, some Gentile who stuck out their life, who imperiled themselves to protect some Jew. It's called the Garden of the Righteous. That's pretty touching for the government of Israel to say, you're righteous and you're on our board. But I know what I'm like. There have been some pretty famous people that are on that list. Some people like Oscar Schindler and Corey Ten Boom. These Gentiles have been called righteous by the Israeli government. 
Job is called righteous by God. I said a minute ago, two things can be true at the same time. He loved God. He struggled to understand why under these trials. Right from the start, God calls him perfect and upright. I like the way James puts it in James chapter 3, verse 2. If anyone does not offend, does not stumble in word, literally in the idea of what he says, the same is a perfect man and also able also to bridle the whole body. In other words, if you desire to control yourself, a lot of it starts with your mouth and your heart and your mind, obviously. Your speech, Job was such a man. He was self-controlled. He had dignity. I'd like to meet this guy. I wouldn't mind having him in my church. Wouldn't mind having him as a neighbor. True holiness is both vertical as well as horizontal. It's vertical. We'll see in a little bit here. One who fears God and horizontal, one who shuns or eschews evil. So we'll leave off at this point that if you desire to honor God in matters big and small, fearing God, shunning evil, like Job, avoiding anything that runs interference, counterintuitive with God's will. God's friends had Job's life all summed up, what he must be guilty of, what he must do. They had him figured out wrong. Their assessment was an error. Why? Because it didn't line up with what God told us about Job in the beginning. Let's glorify God in everything. We'll come back to this idea of fearing God. But let's bow our heads for just a moment. I will tell you, if you don't stay for Sunday school, you'll never figure out how this turns out. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Would you confess before God that you're a sinner? Would you rejoice with me in God if you're a sinner saved by grace? Would you acknowledge that what God says about you is more important than what others say about you? It's all about the truth. It's all about glorifying God. We we were made with a purpose to glorify God in our bodies, in this lifetime, in this four score and ten. You may only have 700,000 hours. I don't know how many you have left. You may not make it that far. Only what's done for Christ will last. Gracious Heavenly Father, teach us to number our days and to apply our hearts unto wisdom. Thank you for Job and the work that you did in him. He was not these things because he dug down deep in himself, because he was such a great man. He was made righteous, perfect, blameless through Jesus Christ. You looked at his life. You summed up what he was and what you had done in him. And Lord, regardless of what people see in us or what they think of us, it's what you know us to be that matters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I didn't plan on telling this illustration, but it's a, it's a good... In fact, it wouldn't be a, a real message without a baseball illustration. The only gospel tract I've ever written... You know, a lot of the tracks that were written for so many years had flowers on the front, or it wasn't really something men would give to men. So I wanted to come up with a line of tracks that men could give to men. So I, I drew a picture of Babe Ruth, and I, I came across a story. It's a true story that um, uh, Babe Ruth was at the plate. You know who was behind the plate? Babe Pinelli, <laughs> who became a Christian, became a pastor towards the end of his life. But uh, Babe Ruth got, 
got up to, to the plate and, uh, and, and saw the first pitch coming in and thought that was a little bit far outside, and so he laid off, and he heard, strike one! was a little amused by it, but not bother, bothered. And uh, knocked a little dirt off the cleats and got back in and, and uh, thought that one was coming a little bit of chin music, a little high inside, and, and backed away and heard, strike two! And he looked at Pinelli and smiled. And people were yelling back and forth. And uh, he got back in, and I don't know where the third pitch was, but he didn't pull the trigger on that one. Heard, strike three! And he threw his bat down, and he got right in the face of Pinelli, and he said, you know what? There are 60,000 people here today. What was it called? The house that Ruth built. Yeah. 60,000 people here today, and every one of them knows that last one is a ball. Listen, what Pinelli told him is what we all need to hear. He said, then you, sir, need to realize that mine is the only opinion that counts. You know, there are people, and where I went with it in that tract, is there are people that say, I'm so worried about what people think of me. And there are others that say, yeah, I don't care what people, I, all it really counts is what I think of me. That doesn't count either. The only one, uh, the only opinion that counts is what God thinks or knows about you. And he's the one that's telling us about, about Mr. Job in this passage. All right, so let's pick up at reverent obedience, reverent obedience. When we talk about fearing God, I think we need to realize that this is a, a foreign concept. This is an offensive term. This is radically, it goes against the, our culture. It's an affront against the modern mindset which says, I don't fear anything. Not too long ago, I was on the freeway, and this truck started, it was rusted out, and <laughs> really rough, and it kept veering in my lane, and I backed off, and then it got in front of me, and then it slowed down. And, but I noticed they had a bumper sticker that said, fear this, and I did. I, I did. So, you know, the, we can't decide whether I don't fear anything, or you should fear what I fear, but they think that everything that is bad and, the, and, and, and fear is, is part of that. But fearing God is part of an uncommon path that call, God calls all believers to, not just Job. It is, if you're going to serve God properly, you should learn what it means to fear God with all your heart, soul, and mind Fearing God is a, is a radical departure from mainstream thinking that says, pay attention to this poll and, this, and be part of this group. And, and the, when the Christian says, no, I, I'm sorry, I fear God. Oh, oh, okay. But you know, the only true way so that you're not fearing what's going on in the world and you're not fearing man is to fear God and know what that means. So, Second thing I would tell you about it is that this godly fear is evidence, true evidence, that God has truly saved a soul. How do I know that? Well, Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 12, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. I love that phrase. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed the body hath power, literally authority, to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. And Job did. Job did. How about David? David is the man after God's own heart. In Psalm 119, David says, my flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. So we're calling it reverent obedience, because we're not just talking about some emotion but a motivation to serve God. Asaph in Psalm 76 verse 7 said, Thou, even thou, art to be, say it, feared. And who may stand in thy sight once thou art angry? 
So this Job, one of the things that he's commended for, he's commended for this action, for the fact that he feared God. I don't often do this, but I'm going to put before you a fairly lengthy quote. It'll take three slides to do this. Somewhere along the line, I picked up an old book that your pastor would like to have, but I didn't bring. Um, It's an 1874 book by William Henry Green called The Argument of the Book of Job. And I, I read, ran across this. I thought, there's no way to paraphrase this. I'm just going to have to put it up the way he said it. So he says, the spring, like a water spring, the spring of this, what is this? The fear of God. This complete integrity was that he feared God. He set the will of God before him as his rule the glory of God as his end, the approbation of God as his highest reward. In this pious fear, he walked all the day long. And he goes on to say, this was his grand motive, overpowering everything else. So when you fear God, you say, you know, I I don't have time. Ain't got time to fear that. I fear the Lord. That doesn't, sadly, strangely, that doesn't matter to me because I fear the Lord. He goes on to say, this closed his ear to the siren song of temptation. This shut his eyes to the gilded lure of sin. The one thought, thou God seest me, was his safeguard and his stimulus. And then finally he says, this impelled him to prompt and ready obedience to every divine command. This made him steadfast in his uprightness and led him to perfectness and completeness in it. The fear of God, we can't leave that out. You can't say chapter 1 verse 1, he was was upright, he was perfect, uh, and he eschewed evil and leave out fear of God. Mr. Green says this is key to it all. So why should we fear God? Well, to be honest with you, to say that you love God and then admit to me that you don't fear God is to tell me that you don't know God, that you're self-deceived. The majority of professing Christians are practical atheists. By that I mean to, they say they know God, but they don't submit to God. They're lying. Secondly, our heart attitude should be in submission to the Lord. Reverent obedience. Fear God. This is our heart attitude in humble submission towards his authority over us. None who have their faith placed in the Son of God have reason to fear God's wrath. We have passed from death unto life. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It is through Jesus that we're right with God. Does that mean we should live careless? I don't care. No. It doesn't mean that we should throw caution out in the Christian life. Absolutely not. Ananias and Sapphira died lying to the Holy Spirit. And you know what happened? Great fear came upon the church, all the church. The saved were greatly impacted greatly afraid. In our church on Sunday mornings, I'm going through the Gospel of Mark, and there's a passage where we read that Jesus cast out demons from a man who lived in the tombs and the, the garrisons. And when the locals saw that man who had formerly been shackled, right, and was now free, it says, they saw him clothed and in his right mind. Then the whole multitude of the gatherings besought him, Jesus, to depart from them. Why? Because they were taken. They were seized with great fear. I'm not interested in something that paralyzes you so that you don't act and obey, but rather a reverent obedience that you said leads me to love and obey.
A book I'm trying to read through just came out this year called uh, John Bivari's uh, The Awe of God. He says, embracing godly fear as our most prized treasure empowers us to remain under submission to truth. And in so doing, it keeps us on the path of life. So Job feared God, and God commended him for it. God starts off this book, before we get to Satan, before we get to the friends, before we find out how much he's worth, God says, he fears me, and you all should. And it is, I would say, that fear and that trust that sustained him when those trials of life came. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding, is insight. I'll back up to say this, that without relationship with God, you can never reverence God as you ought. Let's get that straight. You have to belong to him before you can respond to him. You can be religious You can be strict, you can have all kinds of rules, and not have a relationship. For the believer, this fear of God is not oppressive fear of judgment. You know what it really is? Put it in simple terms, it's desire for sanctification. It's saying, Lord, I know what I am, you know what I am, you know what you're doing in me. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Let me say, Job's friends took themselves seriously. And they took his sin seriously. And Job took his God seriously. That's what it meant to fear God. He knew And he says later on this book, he had this confidence that he would be resurrected, that he would stand before the Almighty one day. His motivation was holy living, not to earn God's favor, but because he had God's favor, because God had saved him, blessed him. And by the way, look in our text in verse 9. It is this very thing, the fear of God, that Satan targeted Verse 9, Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for naught? The pastor Paul paraphrase reads this way. Job doesn't really fear you. He just loves the nice things that you do for him. You take those things away, and his fear of you and his reverent obedience it will melt away into a face-to-face cursing. God says, game on. (laughs) I didn't know you're going to put them on your screen, so I did. Uh, This young man uh, grew up in Westerville Bible Church, and um, uh, when he was finishing his, his time at Bible Institute of Ohio and Columbus, then he decided to go to Northland there for a while, and when he was done with Northland, he really wanted to be a missionary in, in Mexico. And uh, he asked me what he should do. Very few people ask that. But I said, you know, Mark, I think that if, you know, I think you should get all the getting you can get, so when it comes time to give, you can give what you got. I'm not, that's not original with me. And he went off to seminary. And he came down, back from seminary, and he said, I'd like to serve for a year or two in my home church before I go to the field, which turned it almost 13 years, <laughs> which was fine. He was a, a wonderful to work with. But in one of his prayer letters, he says, we are very thankful for God's gracious sovereignty, gracious sovereignty in our lives, directing, redirecting, protecting, even allowing hardship. Now, I'm not trying to embarrass or single your pastor out. But through tears, he told me not too long ago on the phone, I'm going through some hardship, but you know what? If I knew that I was going to learn about myself and about my Lord, I would do it all again. 
How many of us would say, I would welcome suffering, hardship, loss, deprivation, if it means that I know more of him? Mark closed by saying it helps knowing God is in control doing everything that he pleases. So before we think of the book of Job as a book of loss, depressionville, before it all starts, God tells us of Job's integrity. God tells us of Job's devotion. And so lest we be tempted to think, I don't care what people think. Let me remind you that God knew what Job was like. God wrote it down. It's in Job's permanent record. That's what the Word of God is. A couple verses here for you. Paul writing to the elders at Ephesus, he says, Take heed, therefore, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And then Paul telling Timothy later on in 1 Timothy 4, Take heed unto thyself. We might put it, keep a close watch on yourself. Your character, your conduct have always been important to God. It doesn't seem to be so important in political office anymore, but it's important to God. And whenever, whatever age that believers have lived, it's important to stand out, not to fit in. And if you fear God, it'll do that. All believers are to guard their heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Arm yourself with godliness. God holds up Job as commendable. He was blameless. He was impeccable. He had a great reputation among others. But more than that, he was also upright. He was a straight shooter when others were crooked. Well, I don't think God means this. I'm looking for another way. Job said, no, leave me a straight line to obey God. And his, so then his behavior lived within the boundaries of God's word. Don't divorce your life from what you believe. Well, I, this is what I do on Sunday. This is how I sing. This is what I believe. But the rest of the time, this is how I live. Job learned through God's word how to line those up. He was an honest man who could be trusted. He was dependable. He was ethical. No one ever rightly accused him. I didn't say no one ever accused him. Anybody accuse you? Oh, well, yeah. Anybody rightly accuse you? He showed a reverent obedience, a purposeful obedience to God's word. All right, next. And what time should I be done here? Do you have any windows for Eutychus to fall out of? (laughs) All right. Fourthly, he was godly. He shewed evil. Uh, Probably have Amish not too far from you. We have Amish a little bit north of us in, in the Columbus area, above the Columbus area. Sometimes they have been known to shun people who break their, their rules. I was reading up on shunning, and it's not so cut and dry as we would think. It's not that you walk into a marketplace and they always turn their back on you. But shouldn't we all want to, want to separate? But sometimes we think, I need to shun somebody. What I'm talking about, the separation that he did here, first of all, he shunned evil in his own life. Not only what's going on around us, but what's going on in us. So pray for a holy aversion to wickedness. Lord, help that not to appeal to me. Take that away. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. That's pretty simple. Godly men and women don't love what God hates. The prayer is, Lord, bring that in alignment. Help me to learn what it is that you hate, and then for me to hate it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, 22, prove, test all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every appearance, every form of evil. So 
Start with biblical principles, not your personal preferences. Well, I judge others by what I like, what I do. That's not biblical. We start with the word of God and we build it from there. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. Psalm 97, verse 10. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way and the forward mouth. Do I hate? Proverbs 16, 6. The fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So Job was certainly aware of sin, of things in his own life, temptations that he had to battle. He steered clear of those things that would... I don't have the details of this. I know I'm on a first name, but you have to read the book yourself. But I don't know all the things that, that appealed to him. But he said, Lord, these things that would make it easier for me to sin, that I would follow after th- these passions that are already, that my flesh, James, dingles out and dangles out in front of me, help me not to follow that. He says in 31.1, we looked at this earlier, he says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. So you shun evil, not just at the activity level, but at the thought level. This outward action. And you do that, and that shunning is never going to make you popular. I'm not just talking to young people. You say, you know what? I'm not here to preach my convictions to everybody in the world. I'm to to share the gospel with all. But the very fact that you don't laugh at that joke, you don't go into this, you don't follow that, you don't applaud them, you don't say, oh, you're a boy when you're a girl. I I knew that was eventually going to come out in a sermon. But you say, you know what, I'm not interested in fitting in. Kids, a lot of times, I want to watch that movie, dabble in that music, experiment with that drug, whatever it is, so that I feel like it can fit in. God has called us to stand out, and Job did. I never thought I would live in a day when some pastors are trying to be cool and swear openly from the pulpit. By the way, your pastor's not cool. He doesn't swear in the pulpit. God, look at Job 31 and verse 4. I've read to you verse 1, but verse 4 says that God sees. Doth he not see my ways and count all my steps if I have walked in with vanity or my foot have hastened to deceit? Let me be weighed down even in balance that God may know mine integrity. I won't spend a lot of time here, but I'm telling you that sexual purity is important to God. It doesn't seem to matter too much in our society. But you, according to Romans 6, are to offer your members as instruments of righteousness, not as opportunities for personal pleasure. Every part of yourself We have to be vigilant. We have to be gatekeepers to avoid sexual sin. And to turn away from something we've heard all our lives means to turn to something. If you're going to turn to God, you're going to turn your back on things. Turning to God in obedience. Job didn't have the Bible. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have church. He didn't have Christian friends. And yet, you know what? He knew adultery was wrong and justice was right. Pray that God will help you to daily put to death that which doesn't belong. At the same time, I want to be turned off to a self-righteous Pharisee pharisaical legalism by which I say, I know I'm righteous because I don't do the following things. And I also want to be turned off to a self-indulgent hedonism that says, well, then it's all, all okay. It's all good. No, it's not. From all appearances, Job looked like a paragon of virtue. 
But you know what 1 Samuel 16 tells us? God sees the heart, verse 7. God had blessed him. God had blessed him and he was righteous in ways that others around him were not. He had God's approval. The believers, I said earlier, can have this confidence that God has taken the wrath that rightly befell us and put it on his son that we might have the righteousness of Christ. Paul told the Ephesians, see then that you walk circumspectly. He says, look carefully how you live. Not as fools, but as wise. There are an awful lot of people in an awful lot of churches. We passed by some of them on the way here. We passed one called Advanced Church. And you just look at that and you think, I wonder. (laughs) Not to pastor, I I don't know what, what goes on there. You might get kicked in the shins when you come to Calvary. Character and conduct both count. And Job is an example of both. I'm just going to touch on this first one, and God sees. That motivates what I do. I wish I could go farther, but your pastor won't let me. (laughs) But um, Job was priestly. Look back at chapter 1, and we read in these verses 4 and 5, when his sons went and feasted at their houses, we don't know for sure what that means. It could be a birthday. It's my birthday. On his birthday, they feasted. When they feasted, everyone on his, his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And, and it was so that when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt, sac- burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. After studying about his character, the next thing the Lord tells us is a little bit about his family life, his sons and daughters. He acted sacrificially as a sacrificial intercessor for his family. What he had, he wanted for them. He had a close, intimate walk with God. That's what he wanted. He didn't want them just to go through the motions. Before the hardship struck his life, you know what he was consumed with? Sacrifice, a right walk. Job was also concerned for them at the heart level. Well, I'll tell you what, my kids have nice short haircuts and they, they, they don't go to these places and they're not out past this hour. Okay, that, that can be helpful. But what, what about the heart level? He was not going to settle for them living respectable Jewish lives. He was concerned, it says, in verse 5, in their hearts. Today, you and I would point to passages like Ephesians 6, 4, where where fathers are admonished to bring them, them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We can pray for family. Because Jesus was the sacrifice. He was a priest for his family, like a Noah, like Abraham, like Jacob. You say, I, I don't know that I have any animals to kill. We're not. Jesus brought the sacrifice. And because he died once for all, it empowers us, it motivates us to say, Lord, what you're doing in my life, the reality of what's going on in my heart that a lot of people don't see, that's what I want for my family, for my kids. He not only instructed them, he interceded for them. Do we pray one for another? Say, I'm not a perfect father. There is only one perfect father, our heavenly father. Can you just imagine... When Job gathers his sons, I know, I know you're going to, you have a celebration. I don't want to take all the time, but I wanted to give you some counsels. Let me tell you something that I've been meditating on. 
And if you don't mind, I've got, well, I set up 10 altars there, and I've got 10 sacrifices ready. I want you to note his piety amidst his prosperity. God had blessed him with so much, and yet there's a true pious heart. And the fact that his family might have sinned, it affects him. Well, our time is gone. Believe me, I could go longer. (laughs) And there's much more to say. If nothing else, this whets your appetite. I said that he was worshipful. (laughs) Well, the fact is, before the trial, after the trial, Job is still trusting God. When he's told, you know what happened to me on the way here? I got this nice little car. I got smashed. And then I got a little bit farther, and then I got called by an accountant, and I got told that all my money got wiped out. And then on the way here, my wife said she's leaving me. Now, by now, you know, I'm I'm telling a story. But can you imagine, you see, all three of those things in, in just a matter of within minutes, while one guy is still just finished speaking, another guy comes in, let me add to that that there was a strong wind and it hit the four corners of the house and and all your kids are dead. And another guy comes, the Sabaeans came and all your animals are gone. And and Job says, "Blessed blessed be God, and he worshiped God. And I don't know of too many people in the face of that level of trial and loss that worship God, may God help us to grow into that. Say, I may not be rich, but I can be priestly. I can pray for others. I can intercede because Christ intercedes for me. Uh, I, I, I may not be able to control all my circumstances, but I can be worshipful. I can give God the glory. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for our time in the word Instruct us and correct us. Teach us. Help us to be tender before you this day that what we have learned, what you said of Job, we pray might be true in our lives. Give us that reverent obedience today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.